Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Kingdom Ethics is a production of Mercy University's Center for Theology and Public Life. Today is a little different. This episode is a crossover event with the Virtually Church Podcast. Virtually Church is an eight-episode mini-series, which has recently concluded. The show is hosted by Jordan and Taylor Mason, and myself as one of the co-hosts. Our third episode is titled The Kingdom and features David Gushy as our main guest. In that conversation, David spoke with us about the marks and values of the kingdom as part of our larger conversation contrasting and comparing the values of the Christian church and the Christian community with the embedded values of technology. This episode contains both what you would hear in that episode of Virtually Church and some extra conversation, specifically around the life and ministry of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. So we're very pleased to share that expanded content with you here. If you enjoyed this episode, please go find and subscribe to the Virtually Church podcast to be a part of that conversation as well. As always, we're glad you're here. Welcome to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Welcome, everyone. This is the Virtually Church Podcast, a podcast dedicated to thinking more deeply about the differences and values between church and technology. I am Taylor Mason, and I'm hosting this podcast alongside Jordan Mason and Jeremy Hall. Jordan, Jeremy, how are you doing today? Good, good. How are you? Doing yeah, it's well. a beautiful Jeremy? day in Atlanta. That's great. Yeah, it is a very nice day today. And today we are joined by our special guest, Dr. David Gushy. David Gushy is Distinguished University Professor of Christian Ethics and Director of the Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercer University. David is the elected past president of both the American Academy of Religion and the Society of Christian Ethics, signaling his role as one of the world's leading Christian scholars. He is co-author and co-editor of 25 books, which together have sold over 100,000 copies and been translated into a dozen languages. His most recognized works include Righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust, Kingdom Ethics, The Sacredness of Human Life, in changing our mind. Professor Gushy has also published over 150 academic books, chapters, journal articles, and reviews. An award-winning teacher, Professor Gushy offers courses both in se- to seminarians and college students. Over a busy 27-year career, he has written hundreds of opinion pieces, given interviews to scores of media outlets, and has led significant activist efforts on climate, torture, and LGBTQ inclusion. Dr. Gushy, you have quite a resume, and it is uh, a privilege for us to have you on our podcast today. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for wanting me to to be in conversation with you, and it's good to see my students again. Uh, For our listeners, uh, all of us have been students of Dr. Gushy at McAfee School of Theology on Mercer's campus in Atlanta. So that's one way that we have this connection, which is great. So today, we are going to explore how to, one, establish our values as a church through the lens of the kingdom, 
and two, how to keep our values in the lead while being uh, immersed in this technological world during the pandemic that's kind of forced us there. So Jeremy, you host another podcast with David called Kingdom Ethics. Can you give us an overview of the kingdom of God and start a conversation about how this could help us as a church and how we can identify our values? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, This past Sunday, I actually preached on some of these ideas. Um, Mm -hmm. The lectionary handed us, um, took us backwards from Pentecost to Matthew's Great Commission, where Jesus tells his disciples to teach all nations all the things I've commanded you. And so I, I, through the sermon, asked the question, what is the message of Jesus in the book of Matthew? And so we looked at what the kingdom of God is through that gospel and how it manifests, particularly in those central chapters of the Sermon on the Mount. And if I, so I pulled out my my handy dandy kingdom ethics textbook. That's what we like to see. Yeah. Good job, <laughs> Earning my keep over here. Um, and so let's see if I can remember all seven marks of the kingdom. You can realize that you're getting close to the kingdom of God, that it might be emerging around you when you see things like deliverance and salvation, when you see justice emerge, when you start to see the realities of joy, when you encounter healing, restoration of relationships and communities, something else. And the pre- peace, 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 and the presence of God. Got it. All right, six out of seven. That that's B that's a solid for B. You today, Jeremy. That's all right. So <laughs> that's good. So, Doctor Gushy or David? Well, sorry, I'm got to remember that. David, will you talk a little <laughs> bit more about the marks of the kingdom? Like, how important is that to kingdom ethics and to us understanding the kingdom of God? Um, I think some of, for some of our listeners who haven't read Kingdom Ethics, shame, um, kind of break that down for us sure. because we want to take your approach to the kingdom of God and help us as a church, as ministers that are listening or church members, try to identify our values. Um, well, in terms of the origin of the concept, uh, Glenn Sasson, my co-author and, and my teacher, um, kind of nailed down those seven marks of the kingdom by toggling back and forth between Jesus and what he says and does in his ministry and what he quotes from the Old Testament, especially the prophets, and notably Isaiah. And so there's little doubt at least if you take the synoptic gospel seriously, that Jesus's message, just like John the Baptist actually before him, was the message of God's kingdom. And God's kingdom, I mean, was an idea in circulation in Jewish tradition and very lively at the, at the time of Jesus' ministry. There were various understandings of it or, or accounts of it, but at its heart, it means that God intends to reclaim God's world um, to renew it and restore it, to make it what God uh, intended it to be. And, and so this means that you might say the mission of God is, is not just, as Christians have often said, personal spiritual salvation, but instead 
the holistic reclaiming of a broken world. And, and so it is social, it is communal, it is political, it is moral, and it is spiritual. It's all of them. Um, and so the revolutionary impact of of the kingdom of God understood in this way is it redefines the mission of the church from we want to, you know, we want to get people saved to go to heaven or even the more pedestrian, we want to get bodies in the pews to we want to partner and respond to God's invitation to reclaim this world in at least the little ways that we're able to do in our, in our lives. So, so salvation, if you take an Old Testament perspective and then Jesus perspective is about, it's about saving the world, literally, not just about saving souls, but reclaiming or delivering the world from its suffering, from its evil. You know, justice is about redressing wrongs, especially systemic wrongs that crush people. Um, Peace is, of course, about ending violence and restoring or creating the conditions for security for all people. Um, uh, restoration of community is a, is one of the richest themes, I think, in kingdom ethics and in Jesus' message and also his ministry. Um, in the Old Testament concept, a lot of it had to do with returning the exiled Israelites back to their promised land. But Jesus took that theme and talked about redefining the boundaries of community so that everybody, including those who are normally, who were normally excluded as a place at the table. Um, I, so, I think that's, yeah. I, you had mentioned something about uh, the traditional sense of the church and Jeremy and I both are at a Baptist church. You grew up Baptist, Jordan's Episcopalian. So she brings a, a different view in the sense of church and tradition, but I, the idea of the main purpose of worship and church is to either get people in the pews or save souls. In this conversation of the new age during the pandemic, we're seeing a lot of responses of saying, this is great because we're not always focusing on who's in the pew or we can transmit our message. We can share the gospel with a lot more, like many more people than we could if we were just in person. People from all across the state and the country and even internationally are listening in. Isn't this such a great thing? But I often see it align, aligning with just the more traditional evangelical view of transmitting right. a, a simple message versus this more embracing of the kingdom of God, which is more revolutionary and has the embracing of a holistic view of saving, not just people but the world itself right and um the kingdom of god is is a re is complicated in its um timing i want to say a word about this um uh, i believe that what what jesus intended was to say i have come to begin the reclaiming of the world but even through his death and resurrection, after his death and resurrection, the church is commissioned to continue the work that he started. And so um, the church the church, um, will continue to do this until Christ returns. Mm. Uh, 
it is not completed. It will not be completed on, on our own power. And even with the help of the Holy Spirit, there will always be a disastrous um, brokenness in our world. But our we know what our mission is, and that is to address the pieces of that brokenness wherever we have an opportunity. Um, just to do a bit of contrasting, um, Stassen and I got this understanding of the kingdom of God uh, mainly by reading uh, Hebrew Bible and New Testament scholarship. Later, it became clear to me that Walter Rauschenbusch and the social gospel movement um, also had embraced a very similar understanding of the kingdom of God and redefining the message or the vision of Christianity from personal salvation to that plus kingdom of God became central to the social gospel. Um, but this has continually been rejected by a different kind of conservative Protestantism that believes that that is a misreading of the gospel. And well, and for that matter, a tendency to focus more on a particular reading of Paul and less on Jesus was so with an emphasis still mainly on personal salvation, saving people from hell um, and, you know, building up a certain kind of uh, sanctified community in the church. So I wouldn't want to give the impression that this is the only understanding of the Christian message, but it is mine and ours. And it, I think it has very wide appeal. Um, I think it has especially wide appeal among the young who, who see the irrelevance and the, the selfishness often uh, of, the, of the traditional way of understanding the mission and message of the church. So I want to take us back a little bit um, and look a little bit at your dissertation or your, uh, and, and your study in, during the Holocaust and during World War II a little bit. And Jordan brought this up, and I know she's been reading recently a lot more of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so, Jordan, I, I want you to talk a little bit about that and also engage in that conversation with uh, what David has written in his dissertation. Yeah, so I have been rereading Bonhoeffer, um, and I think it's the insight that he has is very valuable, probably for a lot of times in history, but particularly for right now. Um, and I don't necessarily want to compare, you know, our situation right now in America with the Holocaust, um, for sure. But maybe as like a metaphorical jumping off point, I was wondering, what do you think that we can learn from that time in history about how to keep our values as the church in the lead amidst maybe some cultural pressures or pressures that come along with a technological society? So. Um, that might be pulling us in in different directions. Um, I know you did some work with the Christian responses to the Holocaust and how kind of the church uh, identity was not not really strong enough. Their values weren't strong enough in a lot of cases to keep them from some disastrous um, decisions. That, that yeah. triggers a thought about how the contexts could be connected as well, because as you have the the rise of Nazi Germany. The, um, the world was transforming technologically. The message that the fascist powers in Europe were preaching, expounding, presenting was backed up by technological progress. Let, let's, I, I do just want to say, and for clarity, we're not saying we're in the midst of a Holocaust right now with this pandemic. And if we embrace Zoom or YouTube 
were embracing the same thing that Nazis were <laughs> embracing. <laughs> but I think there is some parallels of that. Like, I, I just don't want people to think that we're doing that. And I think you made that clear, Jordan. So um, maybe we can cut that, what I just said out, but we'll see. The, um, <laughs> the study that I did on uh, Christians who rescued Jews during the Holocaust was formative for my moral vision. Um, I had been interested in the Holocaust as a study, uh, as a, well, how about if you say it more directly, I had been brokenhearted once I discovered the Holocaust in like eighth grade and never was able to shake it from my young moral imagination. How could this have happened? Um, and so I continually returned to it. I mean, a sophisticated modern nation came under the control of a government that ordered the annihilation of every Jewish person that it could reach. And um, other groups too, gypsies, I think, Sinti and Roma, same basic agenda. With others, it was a little less complete, you know, in terms of like, we want to kill them all. But 11 million civilians at least maybe 12 million murdered by the nazis um so for scholars of a certain generation in ethics the question how and why and what can we learn what must we learn uh, uh became pivotal um and i was in that generation and in and the generation before too my teachers um it was an explosion of technological evil, actually. Tech, well, let's say technology enabled mass killing at a, at a pace and in a fashion that had never been done before. Um, so once, if you're there, you end up having to work backwards to, okay, so we know what happened between 1941 and 1945. How did we get to 1941? And, uh, how was the Nazi regime born? Uh, uh, how was Hitler appealing? Um, how did people get there? And um, and where was the church? So these questions never go away. Um, Germany had about 80 million people. Uh, Jews were less than 1%. Uh, the vast majority of the people were self-identified Christians, uh, mainly Protestant, but also a sizable Catholic population. Um, and one would have thought that they would have known the toxicity and anti-Christian nature of Adolf Hitler just from reading his book, Mein Kampf, in the 20s, let alone his rallies, his speeches, and everything he said and did as he was rising to power. Um, so there are many, many, many lessons to draw. Uh, one way to say it is that Christians proved easily seducible by a tyrant demagogue who told them some things that they wanted to hear, like he was going to restore traditional values in Germany. He had a kind of a conservative values message in the beginning. He also used Christianity language. Um, he said he was for positive Christianity. That was in the Nazi party platform of 1920. Um, so, um, Christians who had been kind of unhinged by the loss of, of World War One and by the development of a liberal, secular, pluralistic democracy, some, some loosening of social mores in the 20s, found Hitler's message comforting um, uh, on those dimensions. And once he did take power, 
and quickly was consolidating a dictatorship, um, uh, a large number of Christians were fully supportive. A lot of others were kind of supportive. A, a minority were resistant and only a tiny minority were resistant on the basis of clear political opposition to the policies and agenda of fascism and Nazism. Um, Bonhoeffer was in that group. Um, though even Bonhoeffer, um, mainly in the beginning, talked about Nazism's uh, encroachments and seductions of the church and less about specific, like, Nazi militarism or um, anti-Semitism or whatever, but he, he did he did better than almost anybody. Um, and, of course, we know that Bonhoeffer ended up in resistance in various forms through his whole career and ended up in a conspiracy against Hitler and uh, uh, murdered by the state in 1945. Um, one little technological note, uh, a recent reading in this, in this subject reminds me that um, the Nazi party um, mass-produced radios and, and uh, sold them, had, had them for sale at a very cheap price so that there could be a radio in every home. Uh, this was the cutting edge technology at the time. Um, by the way, eventually they banned Jews from owning radios. Radios belong to us, quote unquote, not mm. them. Wow. And, um, in the radio, uh, carefully stage managed spectacles, um, for radio helped to create excitement and support for Nazism in its pivotal early, uh, years. Eventually they also, um, they did advanced work with film. Uh, they sponsored film, including documentary uh, films, including very early color films, um, including the documentary Triumph of the Will, which was really a propaganda piece. So, um, and then of course they, they uh, had cutting edge military technology and then eventually cutting edge murder technology. So technology is, you know, is all in the Nazi story. Um, and it's worth thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. I think it just points out the seductive power of not just politics, but when politics and technology get together to sort of push culture in a certain way that um, the church as a community can resist, but sometimes often has not resisted. Um, and that we really need to think clearly about our values and how our values um, push back against these cultural movements when they happen. Um, what kind of puts the two th parts of this conversation together so far would be if Christians really were to their core, unshakably immovably committed to the kingdom of God principles, marks, characteristics, we ought to have an immunity when somebody is trying to, let's say, infect us with something like Nazism. Right. Um, but that uh, immunity is often not nearly as strong as it should be, partly because not everybody has that kind of moral vision within Christianity. A lot of times they have another kind of vision. Um, and um, Nazism didn't just seduce Christians. Nazism had a kind of religious veneer Hitler used a lot of God talk. 
um, there were a lot of rituals, a lot of um, public events that were more like worship services. So Nazism can be described as a political religion, um, not just as some as a kind of a secular party politics that could seduce Christians. Yeah, that reminds me of what we've been talking about in previous episodes that technologies, um, including our the way we do church, if you consider that a technology in some way, because it's, you know, it's forming the way that we share information and we pass down, um, you know, our ch- church culture to an- another generation. But the way that, um, you know, these technologies form us. So going to a political rally that seems like a church service forms us in such a way that maybe we don't we begin to see that as equal to our church service. It, it's a physical sort of reality that becomes inscribed on our bodies the way that the liturgy is. Um, and that can be some of the danger of the technology is that it becomes embodied and we slowly start to take on some of those values. Yeah. Um, and I just have one more question related to that is what kind of moral leadership do you think is necessary from pastors to make sure that we keep sight of these values? Um, it's very demanding. Um, first, you need pastors who themselves have deeply studied, uh, a kingdom vision. And then it's not the, I mean, this kingdom of God path into justice, peace, healing community is not the only path. Um, there may be people who have different ways of naming these realities. There are, you know. Um, the, the black church tradition, um, has its own path. Sometimes it uses kingdom of God language. Sometimes it doesn't, you know, that is the civil rights, social gospel side of the black church tradition. Um, you know, the Catholic tradition has a social, has a social teaching tradition that gets at some of these same values and maybe doesn't feature the kingdom of God in exactly the same way. So I don't want to say that this is the only path. My path is the only path, but uh, by no means, but somehow people need to get to a place of immovability and clarity about what it means to follow Jesus and that it looks like a certain way of life um, and a certain politics, at least on the political front, at least it means I know an enemy when I see it. I know this is not okay. I The skin crawl test, you know, no, this mm-hmm. is... This is not okay. I decorate um, my office with quotes that I try to use to protect me um, or to remind me of important things. I have one from one of the righteous among the nations, a woman named Paulina uh, Kesaluska, and she says, The righteous did not suddenly become righteous. Look at you mm-hmm. with a righteous Gentiles quote. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting that righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust were not always all that articulate. And sometimes they're, the fact that they were not sophisticated theologians is very helpful. You know, I've, I've, the interviews with them that I got to read about, um, and, and, and sometimes see on film, a lot of times it's like, hey, you know, they'll say, they'll say something like, well, well, any Christian would know that, you know, that Nazism was evil or, any true Christian would know that if somebody comes to your door and they're being chased by somebody who wants to kill them, you have to let them in. I mean, it's obvious. 
just really points out the importance of conscience formation, right? And virtue development that when these situations of these decisions come to us, we don't have the time or the ability to think through them completely. (laughs) So it's really important that we have our conscience and our virtue formed to be able to respond in the moment in a way that um, we don't have time to think through. Yeah. And and I think you're, you're right, Jordan, with currently with the pandemic and the past three, two and a half, three months that we as ministers or as church members have been in this, it's been kind of a crisis mode, a very quick shift. We went from in March to all being together to the next Sunday, no one's allowed to be anywhere in the church. And pastors and ministers are just rushing around trying to make sure people in their congregation are connected, are taken care of, are feel like they belong. And we talked about this in our first episode that all of those factors are playing in the midst of this. And it's much more difficult to take a step back and say, okay, this is a moment of crisis for us. How in the midst of this, do we make sure we continue to keep our values as what it means to be a church? Um, so can you talk a little bit, or do you have some ideas on how as a minister, I'm hearing, okay, I need to figure out my moral leadership. I need to figure out how to establish my values. Maybe it's through this way of looking through the kingdom uh, of God language. How can I, as a minister or even as a church member, take a step back and work through this to start establishing some of my values or Um, finding out what they are? Well, at one level, I think that you kind of find out whether people are committed to justice, peace, community, healing for all, mainly in crisis moments. Um, you, you get a sense of, um, what matters the most, uh, by the decisions that people make in crisis. Um, by the way, one of the main reasons why ministers and churches often do not take a stand for justice and peace and deliverance is because of institutional self-interest, institutional losses. Like if you're in Nazi Germany in 1933 when Hitler's at the peak of his popularity and you preach a sermon saying this violates the core values of the Christian faith, um, large numbers of people are going to get up and walk out in the middle of the message. You might, and you might find yourself beat up or out of a job. Um, so at a, at a much, much smaller scale, I think that the churches in, during this pandemic have been forced to do improv. There's a lot of improv in ethics, right? And there's a book about this, uh, improvisational ethics, Sam Wells. Um, Nobody anticipated on March 1st that on March 15th, everything was going to be different. So you have to improv. Um, now, as anybody knows who's seen like stand-up comedy or improv, sometimes it works well, and sometimes <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> sometimes people are effective, and sometimes they're not. So, there's a lot of stop and start. Um, there's a lot of uh, try and try again. Um, I think that 
the question of how do we survive as an institution has obviously had to be in the minds of every church leader. How do we keep people connected to us? How do we keep them caring about us? How do we keep them giving to us when they can't come in the building? Um, uh, if a pastor can't come visit you in the hospital, I don't know if you've had that in St. Louis, but we've had that here. Yeah. Pastor, yeah. If the pastor can't come visit in the hospital, what service is the pastor rendering that people want to pay for? You know? Um, yes, exactly. You know, if you can't have a worship service and, and the worship service is the highlight of your week, or if you have it, it's online and you're not sure about that newfangled technology or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. um, um, so, but meanwhile, while church leaders are wrestling with how do we keep people loyal? How do we keep people connected? How do we keep people paying the bills? There's also, oh, now we're discovering justice issues like how COVID-19 especially hits African-Americans um, or the way in which uh, unemployment uh, during this period is affecting uh, working class people much more profoundly than professional class people. Yeah. Um, what do we do in response to these realities that we are discovering during this pandemic? Do we just keep our head down and try to keep the show going, you know, or, mm -hmm. or do we quickly pivot to try to do the kind of ministry that would reflect kingdom values, which may not really be about the church's building or interests at all. It's, it's about serving the poor or um, standing up for those disproportionately affected. Yeah. And also about, Inclusion. I think a lot about this. I mean, I don't want to throw any ministers under the bus for any decisions that they're making. I'm not a minister, but um, I've seen a lot of talk of partial reopening being, um, you know, services in person for the healthiest among us who can be there in person and participate fully and take the sacraments and all of this. And then, you know, the more vulnerable, <coughs> excuse me, the, the elderly or the, um, immunocompromised, like they can stay home and they can watch it online. And I just wonder, just it makes me pause if we're having a worship service where the most vulnerable among us are actually not able to be included and present in the same way. I mean, maybe maybe that's better than nothing. Um, I don't know. It just, it creates some complication, I think, when inclusion is such a strong value for your church. And then you're thinking, how do, how do we reopen? Yeah, um, if we were to, I mean, take some of these kingdom values and, and, and put them on the reopening question. Um, uh, the healing theme, uh, was a surprise to me, but we discovered in writing kingdom ethics, not only did Jesus do an amazing amount of healing, but he emphasized healing as one of the marks of the reign of God, healing and human health. Um, and when John the Baptist sent Emissaries to ask, are you the one to come? He pointed to the healing ministry as marks of his messiahship. Um, so risking human health to reopen um, tests that value, right? Um, inclusion in community is another core kingdom value. And, and it's been really interesting to pay attention to who doesn't seem to matter as much as other people during this time? Like, we're going to keep those meatpacking plants open so that we can all have our hamburgers, even 
though the workers there are sickening at a pretty high rate. Um, uh, I'm very sensitive to the issue of how that very old are being treated during this period. Um, with a father and mother-in-law in a retirement community, they've been severely locked down for three months with very limited freedom and very little say in it. Um, how much longer does that continue? Mm-hmm. Um, and who decides? Always a question in political ethics. Who decides, right? So can I can I take a second to do like a quick little uh, thought experiment in the context of what we're talking about? Because I think on the note of taking your values of the need for healing or the values of caring for people that are in the margins or um, things like that, there is we can take that as a value as a church and then we can look at the forms of technology that we have and say, Hey, you know what? The values of this technology line up with the values of what we want as a church in a way. So, and maybe we can discuss this real quick, but um, we are able to live stream a service to homebound members who can't physically get out of their house and we can connect them and bring them a part of um, service and a part of the community to them through our forms of technology. I think most of us would say that's a great way that the values of technology also line up with the values of our church. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, we're also wanting to spend time thinking more deeply of, are there some ways that technology is presented to us as ministers that we could use, but maybe it won't line up with the values of the church. Um, uh, and I'm trying to think of an example. I don't know, Jeremy, if you have an example of, of something like that, or maybe you do, Jordan. In my immediate ministry, my congregation is a suburban church of less than 200. Our online presence, I, I can look at my Google Analytics and tell you, that since we've started our online stuffs, we've had 6,000 individual IP addresses from around the world attend our stuff. If I think... So, I've been called to pastor this flock, this group of individuals who live in a specific place at a specific time. And I believe that the Holy Spirit guides the way that I minister to them, there's a great temptation to go after the 6,000 rather than my 170 and and to Mm -hmm. seek um, maybe fame, maybe a seat at the cool kids table of celebrity Christian pastors. Uh, You got that. You got that. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) you know the names. Um, (laughs) They'll soon be. Jeremy Hall. Everybody yeah. wants to get at the seat with Jeremy. If you that's can, right. if yeah. you can reach six thousand people effectively, maybe that's worth a book deal. Um, I, but there is a temptation there to stop preaching what your community needs to hear, and start going after this larger expanse that requires you to be spread much thinner. Yeah, yeah, David, you you grew up in the evangelical tradition, um, and you've taught and and have been a part of evangelical institutions. We've mentioned in the past just a little bit about televangelism. Oh, 
um, we've brought up this idea of the technology of the radio and even the TV being a way of communicating the evangelical uh, mission or or um, transfer of information is sometimes what we're using when we're debating whether or not it's um, if it's just a transaction of information versus an experience. Um, do, do you think these things like televangelism or the the radio or or other things distracts or enables some of the values that we should be considering or engaging with in um, the kingdom of God? Part like, of what part yeah, of what they, part of what you're engaging or what you're asking, what this whole seems like your whole podcast series is about is how to morally evaluate technology. Um, and so can I camp there for just a second? That would be great. Yes. Um, a lot of 20th century ethics, secular and Christian, um, wrestled with the explosion of technology and technological advances. Um, the idea that we were living in a technological era that within a 50 year period, we had seen technological changes that dwarfed anything that had happened in the previous entirety of human history. Air flight, um, modern, you know, uh, antibiotics, um, uh, modern war fighting technology, uh, communications technology. And now, of course, I mean, we're experiencing it right now. I remember school books in the 60s that envisioned picture phones where you could actually uh, look at somebody's face while you were talking to them on the phone. And that was like Jetson stuff, you know? What? We're doing that right now. We're doing it right now, right? Look at that. Um, I personally believe that, and I'm not an expert in this area, but my gut is that technology is morally neutral. It is, oh. it is a, technology is an expression of human creativity and ingenuity. So in that sense, it's morally good because it reflects our God-given image of God abilities. Um, the downside of technology, what we can do with technology, also reflects the brokenness of human nature. So radio can um, be used for good or evil. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt's fireside chats versus Hitler's harangues, same technology, mm -hmm. right? Um, awful demagoguery can be spread on TV, but so can, um, a, how about a live aid concert in the, you know, in the eighties that raised millions, <laughs> right? You know, that was on TV. Um, uh, nuclear technology can be used for medicine or for the worst weapons that human beings have ever devised. Uh, Zoom can connect people, and then Zoom bombers can come in and, and spread racist junk just because they figured out how to exploit a weakness in the technology. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I would caution against a kind of a negative bias in relation to technology. Hey y'all, Jeremy here. A, a few quick words about this episode. At this point in the show, we have had some technical difficulties and lost David. Luckily, we were able to get him on the phone and get him to call directly into our recording unit. So, 
In a moment, we will continue our conversation, but you'll notice the sound changes because we'll now be talking to David on the phone. Another thing we want you to know is that this episode was much longer before editing. There are sections discussing the righteous among the nations, in-depth talk about the Holocaust and the Nazi rise to power in Europe. If you are interested in these things, we will be posting the full episode on the Kingdom Ethics podcast, which David and I host. You can find that on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thank you for your patience. We're glad you're here. Let's get back to the conversation. Okay, so thinking about, um, I know in Kingdom Ethics, you have a whole chapter on sources of moral authority. And I've been thinking about how it seems to me like we have a crisis of moral authority going on right now because we just don't trust these sources the way that generations before us did. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of like church uh, scandal and so we don't trust our tradition and our leaders as much, but also politically, like we don't trust our political leaders or maybe we don't know what news is true and what's not. And I'm wondering, because it seems to me like this crisis leads to a lot of Christians not knowing what to do and sort of being stuck in indecision. And specifically with these technologies, I think a lot of people are like, well, I just don't know. I mean, I guess it's fine, so I'm just going to use it. And I'm wondering, where do you think we should look for authority and guidance on these issues? Is it is it science? I mean, is it... What, what do we do when we don't trust our sources, I guess, is my question. You have your finger on a major problem uh, that is all over Christianity and all over our society. Um, we, we don't have an agreed, uh, an agreed set of moral authorities or um, reading of the moral authorities that exist. We have fragments. Um, you know, so we have the Bible, but different interpretations of the Bible and of the authority and inspiration of the Bible. Um, the evangelical solution was to attempt to ramp up language about the authority of the Bible to try to settle the authority issue, and it, it really hasn't hasn't succeeded, not for most of us. Um, the church has been deeply discredited, and not equally the same in every context of church, but um, uh, science. There's, I mean, you can pull the difference in people's respect for science and what the scientists say. Uh, anti-elite, anti-science sentiment is pretty strong, especially on the right. Um, media, you know, it's not the days of three, three mainstream TV stations, but instead, um, all you have to do is look at two TVs at the same time and see the different way the news is being told or even presented of what's important as news. Um, so we live in a period of, um, Moral fragmentation, moral division, uh, not just over what we believe, but how we get there. So unfortunately, this, this leaves with, um, church leaders, a uh, more difficult responsibility rather than just appealing to widely shared sources. We have to do the meta work, you might say, of saying why we should continue to, uh, make use of these or that, these or those sources. Why they should, why they should still carry some authority, um, and how we're going to how we're going to use them. In my new uh, book 
coming out in August called After Evangelicalism. I deal with the sources question very thoroughly because, as as your question suggested, Jordan, um, it's very much top, you know, top of mind right now. Uh, very, very important. Yeah, definitely. I think that that is the difficulty in what we're trying to navigate is how do we find the authority of our morals and also our values as a church, as ministers, where do we go with that information and how do we apply that with how we connect with our church during this time? Because, you know, it, the longer we're in this pandemic, the longer we're starting to realize how much longer we're going to be in it. Um, the possibility now that some churches are thinking, wow, what is Advent and Christmas going to look like if there's a second wave? What is the fall going to look like if schools don't go back? And what do, for example, youth programs look like? What happens if we don't have a vaccine for another year or whatever the case is? And, you know, the ability just to run to anything that will supplement what we've currently been doing is um, something that we want to question and think more deeply about, but also how do we continue to engage with our values and stand true to them when we're offered 12 different resources on how to connect with everyone virtually or whatever the case may be. So that's, that's helpful and it's difficult. I think that's not easy to do and it's, it's uh, why we're taking at least eight episodes to talk about all of this. You know, these are good questions, obviously, the crucial questions. Um, there's a distinction between different types of judgment in ethics. You know, there's like theological, kind of theological moves or judgments. There's um, principled judgment, and there's prudential judgment, practical judgment. You know, some of the kind of questions that you're asking are are simply or mainly practical. This or mm. that technology, this or that um, way of uh, getting more people access to what you can make available. They're they're not heavily value laden. They're just kind of strategic decisions, you know. But but others are more fundamental. Um, and another way to turn it around right now, you know, is to is to ask, what have we learned already about the nature and ministry of the church in this three month improv period that we have found mm. ourselves in? So a couple of things I would say there: Christians need to meet together, and that's a biblical principle, and it's also a human need, um, and so. To the extent that something like Zoom can approximate community so you can continue to meet together, it becomes an indispensable technology. There's nothing as good at it, you know? I mean, so we need to meet together. There's a question of how does one do liturgy? What does liturgy even look like if you can't meet together? How do you do Lord's Supper? Um, We've actually been doing, in our Sunday school class, we've been doing Lord's Supper via Zoom. It was requested by our people. We need this. And so... What's odd is that our Sunday school class has ended up functioning. It's about 40 people on an average Sunday. It's ended mm. up functioning more like church. Certain Sundays more than others, but, you know, scripture, prayer concerns, communion, even 
uh, invocation and benediction. Um, so I'm, I'm finding that this improv period is, is reminding me of how much of, of what we do there's a really good reason for. And on what we're trying to do now is to find approximations of it until we can get to that point where we don't have to approximate it anymore. And when we do be are able to get back together again, it's going to be very sweet because we've realized how much how much we need these things, you know, how much we've missed it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another ethical question related to technology is, what do you do about the fact, and Jeremy could probably speak to this, uh, about how no matter what you do, different people are going to have different levels of ability to process what they're being asked to do related to technology. You know, there are some people, and it's not always related to age, but it's often related to age, who, who can't figure out how to connect to a Zoom call. They just can't. Yeah. Or how to download Zoom. Or, or they don't have they don't have a computer anymore. Or um, they don't have a phone that has apps on it. Um, and, and so the communications environment for churches that's been clear for a while has to be multi-layered. You have to communicate all the way from people who only look at print to people who never look at print. Mm-hmm. To, to people who are highly rel- highly uh, up on technology, people who are kind of medium, and then people who have no technological capacity. It would seem to me that <laughs> part of what we would need to do if we have to do this for a while is to increase people's technological capacity, whether they, you know, if they're at all open to it. And mm-hmm. and and that may mean that may mean dressing people up in hazmat suits and going to people's homes and helping them get their computers set up so that they can actually participate in the community. Yeah, do we try to bring everyone to the same level, or do we try to diversify our reach to access people where they are? Because at some level, it, it almost yeah. becomes a class issue. It, maybe you can't, you don't have access to technology that can bring you into a space like the one we're in now. There are thousands of dollars at play to record this podcast currently across three That's different true. medium. Yeah. And, the, you know, the educators are definitely dealing with this. You know, um, K-12, when the kids get sent home, you realize immediately a significant chunk of the students don't have the technology unless you provide it for them. Or if they do get the technology, they don't have the ability to use the technology because their families don't know how to do it. Yeah. So that those are those are kingdom questions. Um, hmm. But, I mean, uh, policy people for years have been saying that if you're going to switch to an information and computer-based economy in large chunks, you you have to invest in bringing as many people as possible to the level where they can participate fully in that kind of economy. Otherwise, they're doomed. There's a, a church that I have a friend who's a minister at in um, Buckhead, and something they have been able to do because of the means that they have access to is those in their community, the, it's an older church, it's a mainline Protestant church in Buckhead, those who, didn't, who don't know how to do this technology, they bought them tablets that have only the apps that the church is going to use, and they sent people to teach them. You push this button, yeah. and it will open a chat room that's permanently open. And so the old folks have a have an iPad with three buttons. One of them lets them talk to their friends. One of them takes them to the church live stream. And one of them opens to the page where the communication from the church will go. 
I can't do that. I, I love that as a vision of how to, how to embrace inclusion while also doing technology. But I also have the, the meta question of is the right approach to just proliferate the technology and bring everyone up to speed and spend a ton of resources on that? Or is our approach better to try to stay in person as much as possible and just use technology as sort of a supplement for those who have access to it? Um, I think that's a fantastic question. I don't have an answer to it. I just think it's a fantastic question to ask. Can I, I, I want to do one more follow-up and then we're going to go to our finding hope section towards the end. Sure. Um, but you mentioned, David, that these are kingdom questions. Um, this idea of how to use technology, the different levels of ability. Can you give us one or just two examples of how you see that being a kingdom, um, a kingdom question just out of clarity? I was, a, I, I, I like yeah. that idea, but I was a little confused of like, how would this be a kingdom question? Can you give me an example with the use of technology, how this becomes a kingdom question? Um, well, if one of the marks of the kingdom is inclusion in community, then uh, technology is implicated in who gets to be included in community. You know, in old day, in old days, when people used to meet in churches, remember that? When people used to meet in churches? Um, <laughs> techno- uh, technology was required to get people to the building, right? And that technology was an automobile. Hmm. So, so the way churches dealt with inclusion in community technologically was to run buses or find uh, ways uh, with rides to get people into the building if they couldn't drive themselves or didn't have a car, right? So church now, vans, in a sense, old school church, church vans. the old church van, right? So, so now you might say that um, Zoom is the church van. Mm. Um, so, so to include people in community, you have to be able to zoom them in. And whatever it takes to get them there is the equivalent of, of the church van. And that's about inclusion in community. Um, and that is a kingdom value. Um, you know, another thing that is a kingdom value related to this moment is not just about the delivery of service. Something we did in our center school class, by the way, the collective mind of a Christian community can, can come up with stuff that individuals would overlook. So somebody suggested pretty early on, you know, we should create a benevolence fund recognizing that during this pandemic, some people still have their jobs and are spending less money so they may actually be doing better economically. Mm-hmm. And other people have lost have lost everything or, or are at risk of losing everything. Yeah. So, so you know, Acts 2, right? I mean, they shared as anyone had need, Acts 2, Acts 4. And... So we decided to set up a class benevolence fund, and um, people donated to it with a small group in the in the class managing it, and and that it was to be there for uh, anybody in the in the in our immediate reach who was in profound economic need, and that's core that's of the of justice and compassion, kingdom values, and we we improvised a benevolence fund. Uh, in response to this particular crisis that we had not had before, and a kind of a uh, internal economic sharing that we had never done before, but now that we've done it, I mean, it's, it's going to be a permanent uh, legacy of this period. We we now have it in case 
because it isn't just pandemics that send people out of their jobs or, or in economic distress. Yeah. So that's a kingdom value that is implicated during this period. So hopefully that's helpful. Absolutely. And it, it makes me think also, I know some churches uh, have been talking about, you know, this as an opportunity to restructure some of the economics. Like there are a lot of churches um, that are more wealthy than they need to be. I think it's fair to say um, in some communities that have more money than they know what to do with during this time and are even getting more you know, assistance from the government. And then there are yeah. churches on the front lines of um, ministering to people, maybe in more urban areas or um, other areas that are more affected economically by this, and they don't have the money to do their ministries. And so maybe a restructuring of how we give and the sharing between churches even um, could be, you know, a new imagination for this time. Absolutely. So I want to bring us to uh, our last section of the podcast. David, this is a moment where we talk about places where we see hope either in the world or in the church community. We thought that in the midst of the pandemic and all of the craziness that's going around in all of our lives, it would be important for us. It's a value of ours to still talk about where we see hope in the world or within our churches. So, um, Jeremy, do you mind going first? I'd be happy uh, where, to. where have you been seeing hope in the world or in the church that... Um, recently. <laughs> Let me tell you about a, a reversal. I had a day that started out horribly because of technology and then became something really beautiful that is a source of great hope for me at this time. Uh, one thing that many have observed is that communicating through tech um, on Facebook or Twitter or any of those sorts of platforms, we say things that we would never say to someone in person. Um <laughs> It removes people's humanity from their name, and they just become an avatar um, or a target. And we had a uh, situation in my church community where several grown adults were calling each other names about politics uh, publicly on Facebook and even brought the name of the church into it. And I saw it, and I thought, oh, great. I'm going to... I'm going to have to call these grown adults and tell them that they got to be nice on Facebook. And I'm like, I was psyched myself up. I'm going to tell them to take their posts down and they got to call each other and apologize. <laughs> and I called the first person and she says, Pastor, I was just about to call you. Do you have so-and-so's number? I was mean to her on Facebook. And I need to apologize. Aww. And I called the next person and they were about to do the same thing. And I called the third person and they were like, oh, thank God. I don't know what to do. I've messed this up. The technology had obscured us from each other, but our church community was going was already at work in the values instilled in people by their known relationship, by that buildup of community over time was going to defeat that distance that had been put there by a tiny uh, icon of your face or your political opinion and wow. what that enables. And so great faith has been awoken in me in the ability of the church to handle its own conflicts. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, preach, Jeremy. I'm That's trying. There you go. <laughs> 
David, do you have uh, somewhere in the world or in the church that's giving you hope right now? I have been very much inspired by the way that my local church community has, that is, I'm speaking especially of my Sunday school class, has stood very steady during this period and shifted rather seamlessly to virtual communication um, and the numbers have stayed up and some people actually participate better and more thoroughly online than they ever did in person. Um, the quality of the personal sharing and self-disclosure, I think, has deepened in some ways. Mm. And also in the events of the last several weeks with the Black Lives Matter, um, George Floyd, police brutality issues, um, our class has been able to, our class, which is deeply interracial and intergenerational, as well as LGBT inclusive, has been able to talk about these issues in a way that I don't know that we that we would have been able to reach before. So let's just say I, I find hope in the way that church has not just survived, but in some ways has flourished in our local expression over 12 long weeks. And who knows, there's no, in our local church, we're not hearing anything about getting back together in person anytime soon. Mm. So it could be many, many, many more weeks. Um, yeah. You know, I'm hopeful that the various kinds of improvisational responses that every level of society has had to make to the pandemic, that we, it's awful, but that in many sectors we are finding a way forward through, you know, like we're, we're reopening and doing some, and being able to restore aspects of normal life, though, with a lot, a lot of social distancing and sanitizing and all of that. In other words, we're improvising, but we're finding ways to keep our civilization going while dealing with a pandemic that we don't have we don't have a vaccine for. I mean, I know the numbers are looking pretty scary in a lot of areas, but I'm also seeing some pretty effective improv uh, happening in response in some areas. Um, so I also I see you know you see people of every of every type are trying to take care of each other when they like to go to the store and wear their mask and keep their social distance and all that. They're, I mean, if you think about how quickly everybody had to change because of, of an unprecedented health threat, people had to turn on a dime. Now, you're never going to get 100% compliance, but I really feel like, on the whole, a lot of people radically have altered their behavior to try to save each other's lives and their own lives. I think there's something hopeful about that. Yeah. I mean, I've seen lots of failures. Lots of government failures, not even to mention, you know, the police brutality issues and all that we're not talking about today, I guess, but, but, but human beings, some of the best sides of human behavior, um, have also been evident in these days too, I think. That's great. Jordan? Um, yeah, I had the privilege of discovering Resma Menicum's work uh, last week. He has a, an interview with Krista Tippett on, on being on her podcast. And uh, he does work on trauma and race. And I have just found his language to be so incredibly helpful for, uh, for me during this time to kind of name, like, how does this race consciousness get lodged in our bodies? And what are some practical um, things that we can actually do to start restoring and healing our bodies uh, in this time of of renewed um, 
bigger in this area. So that's, that's where I'm seeing hope is that, you know, people are doing some hard work and he's been doing this work for a long time before I found it. Mm -hmm. Um, and that we, we can draw on, on those different resources, um, in our, our work of reconciliation. And I've been, uh, finding hope this week in, uh, reading and hearing about places of, of worship getting more creative than just Zoom meetings. Uh, I, I read about someone putting together a live drive-in worship service where people drove huh? their cars into the parking lot and got an AM radio just like sends out the signal and people can listen in their cars and stuff, but they're still present. And this type of creativity in a way that's thinking even more outside of the box than normal is kind of exciting. And it just brought a smile to my face and that made me feel hopeful. Doctor, uh, you know, Doctor Gush, hey, oh, I, go ahead. I, I just want to say that you know, one question that this period absolutely forces on the church is: if we weren't, if our churches didn't exist, would anybody miss them? Mm-hmm. And and I feel like we're finding that, yeah, for the vast majority of churches, if we did not exist, people would miss them, um, mm-hmm. would miss us, would miss each other. I think it's a it's a purgative and clarifying time as to the nature and mission of the church. Hard, hard time. And I know some churches will not survive. But the church, Capital City, will survive and we'll have learned some good lessons from this and all over. David, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us uh, today. Thank you uh, for wanting to have me on your podcast and um, it's great to hear your voice again. Jeremy Jordan, thank you too for talking. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Also, thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe to our podcast for new episodes. Leave us a review on iTunes or on uh, wherever you get your podcast. And follow us on Facebook to get updates on upcoming podcasts. Extra resources will add um, the links to some of the books and resources that we've talked about this week on the episode on our Facebook page. Um, also, uh, leave us a review, rate us and leave us a review. It's a way that we can be found. It helps all the algorithms, uh, push us forward. So more people can listen and dialogue into this conversation. And finally, do you have questions, thoughts, or concerns, or if you want a topic to be talked about or to engage in this conversation, send us an email at virtuallychurch at gmail.com or leave us a message on our Facebook page at virtuallychurch. Thank you once again, and we will see you next week.